your way, if you will, to Luke chapter 4. We live with the oppressive rule of the Prince of Darkness. Satan and his legions prowl the globe, wreaking moral havoc and leaving in their wake all manner of suffering. Like an evil king, Satan disperses his forces throughout the realm to oppress, to torture, and to destroy. You remember Job, a righteous man. But God leaves this righteous man under the thumb of Satan for a season. And Satan takes that opportunity, having a free shot at Job. No restriction other than those few that God places on him. And what does Satan do? He systematically assaults Job with tragedy, with injustice, with poverty, with disease, with loneliness, and with betrayal. And under the collective force of those assaults, do you remember how Job responds? He reaches that state of mind where he wants to die. Listen to what he says. May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. Why did I not perish at birth? and die as I came from the womb. For then I would be lying down at peace, hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day. For there the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. That's Job's response under the oppressive influence of Satan. He reaches that point of agonized weariness, That is Satan's way with us. He poses as an angel of light. He offers joys unspeakable. But the environment that Satan labors to generate is always one of false belief, of moral depravity, and of physical suffering. And for now, that is our environment. We are all dying. And there's some of us who have gathered here today who are battling and tortured by disease. We are all sinners, and some of us are suffering intense agony this morning because of our moral failures, past and perhaps present. We are all vulnerable to satanic deception, and some of us are entangled in the web of worldly philosophies. For now, this is the prevailing environment against which we struggle. Yet we're here. We're here. We have not gathered here this morning in despair. This is the Lord's day. And the Lord whose day it is, is not Satan. Though struggling against an environment of human depravity, we gather this Lord's day with abundant hope because many years ago, a prince from another land invaded this world. He put his hand on the door of Satan's castle and he ripped it from the hinges. And he stormed the gate, serving notice that he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yes, we live in a fallen world. 
It is reeling from the effects of sin, and those effects influence each of us to varying degrees. That is our environment now. But we can rejoice together today. We can come together and sing songs of hope and songs of joy because the kingdom of Jesus Christ has conquered and will ultimately displace forever the kingdom of Satan and his environment of sin. That's why I'm here. That's why I sing. That's why I rejoice. There is coming a day when this kingdom of Jesus Christ will wipe out the rule of Satan from the face of this earth. From Mount Zion, Jesus will rule the world in righteousness. Think of that day. In this realm, sin will be squelched. From this realm, worldly and destructive philosophies will be dispelled. And throughout this realm, suffering will be vanquished forever. Outside of that last and final rebellion at the end of this kingdom reign, the environment of Satan will be wiped clean. This is no vain hope, Christian. It's no vain hope. This is the confidence that we have because Jesus demonstrated in word and deed that he holds authority and power over Satan and over our cursed environment. We gather as sinners. We gather as those who suffer in a fallen environment. But we can know that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is marching on and it will be fully established and our hope is bolstered by the revelation that we find here in Luke chapter 4, the passage that is before us today. As we come to Luke 4, remembering from last week, Luke has recounted the highlights from Jesus' 18-month-long tour of Galilee. That's what he's doing here. He chooses to take one scene from that tour, the rejection of Jesus as Nazareth, and he places it at the beginning of this account. For it, in a sense, epitomizes the rejection that Christ will receive in this Galilean tour. Remember where it ends. In chapter 9, Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem. He turns his face to death. But it is here we find ourselves in this 18-month ministry where Jesus demonstrates his authority and his power on earth. And in this account of the rejection at Nazareth, remember back at verses 18 and 19, Jesus preaches and says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, as he quotes Isaiah 61, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus' ministry as he displays that as he speaks that there in the synagogue of Nazareth. This is what he was sent to do. Now beginning at 431, Luke records numerous scenes from Christ's life which demonstrate that he was this Messiah in both word and in deed. In word 421, he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's his teaching. I am this one. I am this Messiah. He fulfills it in word. Now at verse 31, we see him fulfilling his mission indeed. Luke begins here to demonstrate that Jesus is in fact the one who has come to defeat the powers of darkness. At 431, Jesus puts his hand on the door of Satan's castle and he yanks it from the hinges. Here, Jesus assaults the powers of darkness in three interrelated scenes. 
Three, I should even say it this way, distinct displays of divine power. We see several scenes, and these scenes broaden as we work our way through. First of all, we will see the narrow teaching at Capernaum, to that one village. Jesus teaches the truth, and we need to understand that his teaching is an assault on the philosophy of Satan, the philosophy of this fallen world. We might epitomize that with Matthew 5-7. through In Jesus' preaching, in his teaching, there is always this assault on the false doctrine of Satan. The second element that we will find here is exorcism. For lack of a better word, the casting out of demons. And in this, of course, there is a direct assault on satanic oppression. The third element that we will see is healing, an assault on the physical effects of sin. Now this is laid out for us in Luke chapter 4 in a very interesting way. We see a, a repeating of these three ideas or illustrations of these three evidences of Christ's uh, power. I lay it out here as books on a shelf, if you'd like to look here at this graphic, as we see, first of all, Jesus the teacher in this section. We're looking at 431 to 44, and then there will be his exorcism, then two accounts of healing, then we come back to exorcism and back to the teacher. So you see how these are sort of laid out like books on a shelf, reflecting each other, mirroring each other. Now, in all of this, the second three books that you see here, as we work in English from left to right, as you see those second three books, there will be a broadening of the evidence of Jesus' power. So in the first occasion, we will see him teaching at one city. We will see him casting out one demon in the second book here. Then we will see him healing one person. Now, as we come to the fourth book and we go back to the theme of healing, taking it in reverse order, there will be healing of the masses. There will be an exorcism of the masses, and there will be teaching to many other cities. And it, with these three themes, we find in this section of Scripture a demonstration of the authority and the power of Jesus Christ over the realms of darkness. We note then, first of all, Jesus as the teacher, beginning at verse 31. When he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. Capernaum. We have here, just if you'd like to look on the map here, we have its location on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it says that Jesus went down. Now, as I mentioned last week, I don't believe that the account at Nazareth is chronologically ordered here for us. And so when it says went down, I don't believe that means he's going from Nazareth down to Capernaum, though that would have been the case. But rather, Capernaum is on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and that sea is below sea level. And so almost any place from which Jesus would have left to go to Capernaum, he would have been going down. 686 feet below sea level, the city sits on the on the shore there of the Sea of Galilee. It is a prosperous fishing and agricultural center. You might remember this is the home of two brothers, two sets of brothers. Who were they? This is Peter and Andrew's home. This is James and John's home. It is a cultural center, a Jewish center. It is a fairly sizable town, we would probably refer to it, as opposed to a large city. But it is a significant place, a beautiful place, as the agriculture thrives here, and of course fishing as well. 
There was a synagogue in Capernaum. As a matter of fact, uh, archaeologists have unearthed, I believe in the early 1900s, a synagogue that probably sits on the one uh, where Jesus visited, the one that Jesus visited here. And you'll remember the one in Jesus' time was funded by a Roman centurion. And Jesus will have interaction with that man later. But this is, in a sense, home base for Jesus' ministry. His hometown is Nazareth. He's rejected there. But here at Galilee, he sets up home base for this Galilean ministry, this Galilean tour of 18 months. And so much takes place at this town of Capernaum. Now, on a Sabbath day, as was Jesus' habitual practice, he enters the synagogue and he's apparently asked to teach on this particular day, verse 31. He began to teach the people. We see the response in verse 32. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. Why specifically were the synagogue attenders at Capernaum amazed? They're amazed because he teaches with authority. Mark chapter 1 verse 22 helps us out here that that is in contrast to the teachers of the law. The rabbis of Israel prided themselves in reflecting on the teaching of others. They commonly quoted other rabbis as their authority. So-and-so says this, but this guy over there, he says this, and I kind of think as I put these together that this is the answer. They love to do that. In sharp contrast, Jesus just spoke the truth straight up. There is nothing inherently wrong with quoting others. In fact, in our day, at times, it's unethical not to. The point is that Jesus did not drop names. He did not show off how much rabbinical literature he had read or with whom he had been hobnobbing about the latest opinions. Jesus just looked the people in the eye and he said, here's the truth. He gave it to them. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't need to learn from any of them. That's a a difference between him and the rest of us. It's not wrong to quote others. But the point is that he spoke in a different way He just let them know what the truth was. Unlike the teachers they were so used to hearing at the synagogue in Capernaum, he did not continually repeat the phrase that this person says and that person says. He said rather, I say to you. And you'll notice that in the Gospels many times. Jesus will introduce his teaching with, I say to you. And of course, as we remember back to Matthew 5-7, through you have heard that it has been said, but I say to you. It is not... You have heard that it was said by this rabbi, but this rabbi says, Jesus just stands forward and speaks with authoritative truth. And that catches people's attention. This is very different. He spoke with authority. We might illustrate it. Let's say you're having a very bad problem with your car. And it seems like it's just impossible to figure out. And you take to a mechanic, and he sort of waxes eloquent you and says, well, some people say that this is what you should do with this problem, and other people say that you should do this. And I kind of think that it might be putting those two together, a little bit of both, and I would say that let's try this and see how it works, but I'll call a couple other mechanics and see what they say. Your hope is not soaring at the moment, is it? This is the guy who really doesn't know what he's going to do with this thing, or he might be proud about the fact that he knows a lot about auto mechanics, or at least what other people think about it. But would it not be very refreshing then to take the car into some guy and he says, here's what your problem is, I'll take care of it, and here's how I'll do it. That contrast between those two mechanics, to use the illustration, the 
People at Capernaum, the Jews of this time, were very used to hearing that first scenario. Well, this person says, this person says, we think this. Jesus is refreshing because he says, this is the truth. Delivers his teaching with authority. Now, as Jesus is teaching, we notice then here a direct assault on the falsehood and the lies of Satan. He does not come comparing texts. He comes with the truth. And it is an attack on Satan's falsehood. As Jesus is teaching, there is a man here in the congregation that Sabbath morning. He grows extremely agitated under the sound of the authoritative teaching of truth. This is where I draw that point. I believe that Jesus' teaching is an assault on Satan, and the evidence of it is there's a man sitting there who can't stand it any longer. And in the experience of this man, we witness a second way in which Jesus demonstrated his authority over the powers of darkness, and that is through exorcism, beginning at verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I don't think anyone was sleeping in the synagogue that day. But if there were anyone sleeping, they're up now. This is one of those things where everybody kind of jumps and looks around and what in the world is going on? Somebody starts yelling in the middle of the service here. I don't think they were as quiet as we were in their services. But this was very unusual. What is happening? I believe that the demon realizes that what Jesus is teaching is an all-out spiritual assault on the powers of darkness. Jesus' gracious, godly teaching riles up the spiritual enemy, and the demon grows defensive. As James 2.19 says, Satan trembles at the thought of the power of God. Well, what is this demon saying exactly? Ha! What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Why is he saying that? It appears that the demon is seeking to control Jesus with words. Now, I can illustrate that, I think, for us better than we maybe catch it from the text itself. I'm walking down a street one evening, late at night. A young man emerges from the shadows, coming very aggressively and in a threatening way toward me, and he has a baseball bat in his hands. Now, it just so happens that this is the grown son of one of our neighbors. And I notice, his, I've seen his picture in the neighbor's house in the entryway many times, and I realize this is our neighbor's son. As he's coming at me, I might say something like, now listen, we don't want any trouble here. You don't want to do anything rash or foolish. I know who you are. I know that you're Jim Smith's son. Now just take it easy. Maybe to use a different illustration, you might get a harassing phone call, or one of those calls where somebody just calls and says nothing. You know that they're there. But maybe as they call one night, and they're seeking to scare and to intimidate, you recognize by some noise in the background or by some mistake that the person makes with their voice, you realize who it is. What are you going to say? You're going to call their name. I know this is you, so-and-so. That's what the demon's doing here. I know who you are. I know who you are, Jesus. Now just hang on. Take it easy here. Don't assault us. I know who you are. 
I think that's what is happening with the demon here. It is very interesting to note the parallel back in 422. Remember the people of Nazareth. We know who he is. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Trying to categorize a person, trying to name them, putting them in their place, is a way of opposing them and seeking to control them. Verse 35, how does Jesus respond? Be quiet, he said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. As we will see below, there are other reasons why Jesus commands silence here. But again, think of the illustration. Now, in this illustration, if I'm saying to this young man with the baseball bat poised to knock me in the head with it, and I keep saying, I know you're Jim Smith's son, I know who you are, just take it easy, let's not do anything rash. What might he say to me if he is going to go through with this uh, theft? He's probably going to say somewhere in there, shut up and give me your money. Now Jesus is on the other side of the equation here, but that's basically what he's saying. The demon's saying, I know who you are, you're God, and Jesus says, shut up, quiet, silence. No more talking because you're not going to control me with your speech. You come out. And he does. Like that. He's gone. This is nothing less than the cosmic struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman prophesied in Genesis 3.15, beginning here at Capernaum, at least in the account of Luke. Now, other healings have probably taken place by this time, we're not sure, but as he lays it out here for us to see thematically, this is the assault on the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. Jesus has come, and he's entered Satan's castle, and he has said, be quiet, come out, and the demon does. So this conflict, this ancient prophesied conflict has begun, and on that point, let the record show, most excellent Theophilus, writes Luke, there was no contest. There was no contest. Jesus wins. Verse 36, the response of the people once again. He teaches, they respond with amazement. He casts out this demon, the people were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching? And literally there it should read, what is this word? What is the power of this individual's command? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. As they were amazed at his teaching, so they are amazed at his exorcism. And I think the parallel responses are not coincidental. In his teaching, Jesus stomps on Satan's philosophical lies. In his exorcism, Jesus stomps on Satan's oppressive control. Jesus puts his hand on Satan's door, and he walks in. Without fanfare... And this is, I think, part of the amazement. It's without fanfare, it's without incantation, it's without burning of incense, it's without boiling up some magical potion, it is without any hocus-pocus of the sort. Jesus speaks, and the demon leaves. That's power. That is authority. And with this exorcism, as with his earlier temptation, Jesus again serves notice to the powers of darkness that he has come, and they should tremble. 
He has come to attack the realm of sin, and he has come to attack the realm of suffering. And so the text proceeds to our third element. It was common practice for the Jews to hold synagogue at mid-morning and then to disperse, very similar to our own situation, for a noonday meal. Every Sabbath, this was the tradition. Now, Luke is going to mention Simon here, but he's going to do so playing that note as quietly as he can because Luke has not yet taken us to the point where Jesus chose his disciples. But he just mentions the name of Simon here. He'll get to the choosing of the disciples later in his development and says that Jesus, apparently, we fill in a little bit of the blanks here, but Jesus goes to Simon's house apparently as soon as synagogue ends. Now what a day that was. People were talking on the way home. That was a different service with this exorcism and with this amazing teaching. But he goes now to Simon's home there in Capernaum and uh, is invited there to eat. And we see then this third element of Jesus' authority demonstrated at verse 38, and that is healing. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. I, you, you just, we've got to bring a little human element in here and certainly have a degree of pity for this woman. Don't we need to? She was probably going crazy that she couldn't go to synagogue that day. Jesus the rabbi was coming. Not only that, Jesus the rabbi was going to come into the home where she lived, or at least her daughter lived, but probably her as well. She lived, and she was going to be serving this great rabbi for lunch. Well, the whole thing is destroyed by a high fever. She's so sick she wants to die. Luke uses a medical term here and indicates she is in a raging fever. The whole day has been messed up for this woman as far as she is concerned. I'm sure she's very disappointed, but here she is with fever. Now Jesus enters into this home of Simon Peter, would have been as a fisherman's home, a very common, basic, simply one-room home. And here is this older woman laying there on the floor, probably on a mat, with a raging fever. And they say, Jesus, is there something you can do to help her? Verse 39, so he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. He rebuked the demon, like as he rebuked the demon, so now he rebukes the fever. And once again, all it took was a word of command. The sickness and disease to which sin subjects us is directly assaulted by Christ. The Gospels often distinguish between demon possession and sickness. They are not always the same thing. They can be, but they are not always the same thing. And we'll find even later in this text that distinction is made fairly clearly. But there is a sickness here and I think Jesus' rebuking of the sickness is not so much a casting out of a demon as it is, again, an assault on this sinful world where sickness and disease reign. Sickness is a natural result of life in a fallen world wherein the wages of sin is death for all of us. Jesus rebukes it. And we notice then in the middle of verse 39 that she got up at once and began to wait on them. Now you have to love that. This phrase, the, there is so, this is so tight, the Bible is written so tightly, so carefully. There's not a throwaway phrase anywhere. 
This is here for a reason. The woman is healed of this raging fever, and she gets up and starts serving. This is what she wanted to do all day anyway. She gets up and gets back to her business. It proves, number one, that she's really healed immediately. Secondly, I think that Luke is pointing to the fact that this woman did not sit around and talk everyone's ear off about what had just happened to her or run to the neighbors promoting herself as some celebrity. Jesus healed her in order to serve. And that's really the only reason he heals anyone. Whether it is a physical disease or it is from the sickness of sin, when Jesus heals us, he heals us to get busy in his service. Not to become celebrities. Not to sit around as if we are somehow special, but to serve his cause. She gets right after it. She had a job to do, and she does it. Her sickness, yes, had kept her from seeing that exorcism in the synagogue that day, but in God's providence it had opened for her an experience she would never forget. That day when Jesus of Nazareth bent over her cot and said something to her, we don't know what, but then she felt at that very moment the temperature of her body drop right to normal. She gets up and she serves the Lord. What a day that was for her. Now it was against Sabbath law to carry someone. You can't pick anybody up on the Sabbath. Think of the timeline here. Mid-morning, Sabbath meeting, the teaching, the exorcism. We go then to Peter's house for the noon meal. There's the healing of his mother-in-law. But you can't carry anybody on the Sabbath. And perhaps also, out of respect for Jesus, he's left alone to rest at Simon's home through the afternoon, we would assume. But when does Sabbath end? It's, it ends at sundown. Look at the next verse. When the sun was setting, people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. You see how we've gone, we can maybe look back at our bookshelf here, we've gone from the healing of an individual woman, and now we are moving to the expansive healing of Jesus. He's not limited to healing people whom he knows in the privacy of their home. People now begin to descend upon Jesus with their sick relatives and friends, and they bring, him to, they bring these people to Jesus. And there in the night, apparently by candlelight, Jesus is meeting with them one-on-one -on -one and is healing all of the people of the area. It says he laid his hands on each one and he healed them. Various kinds of sickness. Jesus is not stumped by the tougher illnesses. He is not set back here in this setting by anyone's lack of faith. They bring, him, they bring the sick in, he puts his hands upon them, and he heals them. Individual touch, but a complete and absolute healing for all who will come. What a night that must have been. The people of Capernaum were not sitting around with smug looks and crossed arms saying, yeah, we know who this guy is, yeah, he grew up around here, we know his family. They were running around getting everybody they could find to come to Jesus for healing. They're running, spreading the news, loved ones being carried on cots, hobbling in as fast as they can. I imagine some of those healed folks had to stay up the whole night gleefully testing body parts and feeling for pain that was no longer there. 
And I imagine there were others who slept very soundly that night for the first time in a long, long while. The healer had come. And I imagine in my mind's eye a happy, exuberant throng pulsating around Jesus into the night as the sick continued to arrive. It was a glorious night of miracle and wonder. A joyful glow hovers over the scene while the demonic forces shriek with fearful anger. And on that note, not only the sick were delivered that night, but verse 41, Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God! But He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew He was the Christ. This verse indicates that the sick and demon-possessed were not the same people, Perhaps some of those who were sick were actually demon-possessed, but that's not stated here. The two groups are held apart to some degree in Luke's account. But notice again that the word is expanded from the single, the work is expanded from the single man at the synagogue to the crowds of people. Verse 41. Many people were were, healed. delivered from this demonic oppression, and many shouting out, you are the Son of God. Now we've already established earlier in the text that this was probably a means of seeking to control Jesus, but there seems to be something more to it here than just that in this verse. Notice at the end of verse 41, it says, He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. Why? Because they knew He was the Christ. Now what does that mean? What is Satan known for? He's known for false testimony, for lying. He's the father of lies. And so I think to some degree what is happening is is that Jesus wants his actions, his words, and and the witness of redeemed souls to attest to his authority, not unreliable demons. Can you imagine the scenario? Did you hear Jesus is here? He's the Son of God. He's come. Oh, really? Who is this Jesus? How do you know that he's the Son of God? I heard it. A demon said it as he came out of somebody. A demon. Really? So Jesus is the Son of God, and you know this because a demon told you. It's not a very reliable source, is it? As a matter of fact, it might indicate that Jesus and the demons are working together. I'll give you my soul, says Jesus, and Satan says, I'll give you my support. You claim to be the Son of God, I'll have the demons attest to that, and we will deceive many. Jesus always says this when the demons proclaim who he is, quiet. Perhaps sometime late into the night, Jesus lays down for a few hours of sleep. Perhaps he does not. We don't know how many were sick and brought for healing. I don't know, but I'd like to imagine there may have been some triage going on there that night, bringing in those who were in the worst shape. And once he'd worked his way through all of them, people saying, you know, I got this little pain in my elbow here. Let's go down to the smaller issues and work through it. I don't know how long he was up that night or how much he must have worked. But it was a long night. Remember, this all started after dark at sunset. But think of that. Think of this busy day. And as anyone knows who's lived through a busy Sunday of preaching and ministering to people, there's an exhaustion that's really hard to explain. Jesus has to be utterly 
spent. But where do we find him? Verse 42, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. He's up at the crack of dawn, and he's about his business, which the other gospel brings in here is to pray, Mark 1. He's getting alone with God for solitude in prayer before the day begins. But solitude was something Jesus always found hard to secure. And so, verse 42, the people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. You can't really blame them, can you? If nothing else, they wanted to retain him as the town doctor, the town exorcist. I mean, what else could you ask? But Jesus graciously refuses, and notice the message of his teaching here in verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Jesus has a strong sense of mission. He will not permit popular opinion to deter him from his course. The message must go out, not only in Capernaum, not only in Nazareth, thematically here, it must go out to all of the towns. And so, he refuses the offer. And the emphasis of that mission, notice, falls not upon the performance of miracles, but on his teaching. He has truth to declare. Specifically, good news of the kingdom of God. The point is that he has salvation to present the deliverance from the powers of darkness. There's good news to broadcast throughout Palestine, throughout Galilee right now, and he must get on his way. His kingdom, his rule, would provide such deliverance to everyone in his realm. He has come to rule a, a realm free of sin and suffering. And so his itinerary is sketched out there for us in verse 44. He kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. That's a strange note. If you're, if you're awake, you caught that and said, wait a minute, Judea? What do you mean Judea? He's in Galilee, right? Galilean ministry, that's where he is. Two possible answers. One, there are many textual variants that read Galilee, and in any event, that's what it means. But there's also historical evidence that some, particularly Roman officials, spoke of all of Palestine as Judea, just as a collective term. So we don't, don't take this to mean he somehow jumped south into Judea. There are few that suggest that, but that is just not borne out by the, uh, by the gospel writers. So what it, what it, just Judea meaning Israel. He's going throughout the synagogues of Israel, or again, we might see, take the textual variant and say that this is a reference to Galilee, as some translations do. At any rate, we know the truth of the matter is he's going to the synagogues in Galilee at this place in time to proclaim the kingdom of God. So as we look on our bookshelf, Jesus presents himself as the teacher, assaulting the falsehood of Satan's kingdom. The authority and the power of Jesus are in his teaching, in his truth. And let's remember in this, as believers in Jesus Christ and as a Christian church, we need to come and to embrace that very same idea. The authority and the power of this local church is not vested in its size or financial security, but in its faithfulness to the authoritative truth of God's Word. 
We are doing what we are supposed to do as a church insofar as we honor his truth, proclaim it, explain it, exalt in it, and follow it. This is our authority. This is our power, the truth of God. That's what Jesus came to proclaim, and that's what we must cling to. We must cling to this truth and permit no substitute to deter us from our course. And as the life of Jesus plays out, it will become more and more clear that the crowds will want the miracles of Jesus with little genuine interest in his teaching. Give us the healing. Give us the exorcism. Give us the miracles. Give us the show, Jesus. But they didn't want what he taught. And that is for churches such as ours, a continual pressure. There's certain things that you can do to see a crowd gather. And it's so clear because all around us are churches that are coming into our town that are growing multiple times faster than we are growing. Now, that can be for many different reasons. But I do believe one reason is the teaching of God's Word. There are a couple of other themes on some things that we don't want to do that these churches are doing, but one consistent theme between all of them is that God's truth is watered down, it is simplified, and it is dramatically shortened. Now, I know that some of that's personality, and I know that God calls you to endure me. There's a command in Scripture that says, endure the preaching of the Word. But I also know that in 10 minutes and 15 minutes, <clears throat> I have a colleague in town who said he'd get fired if he preached longer than 15 minutes. He said that to my face. I would lose my job if I preached longer than 15 minutes. I know in all of the time that's necessary, there's... It, it, let me say it this way, there is time that is essential for us to really delve into the depths of God's Word. Now, I think there's more to it than that, certainly. Much more to it than that, and I want to address that even in our evening series beginning here in September and October. But there is, on this point, something we've got to hold on to, and that is that God's Word matters. We can't let go of his authoritative truth because we have no other authority than Jesus Christ and his word given to us in the writings of the apostles and the Old Testament prophets and the scriptures. And so I was greatly encouraged this week. I'll be real honest here. I was a little discouraged this week when I heard, saw in writing, a man that I know very much uh, whose church has grown by 350 in five years, right in our area. I just thought, why is that? I know the man, I know the church, I know what's going on, and I don't get it. But I was, God used this to encourage me, and may it encourage all of us. The words of Alexander McLaren. Offer men the smaller gifts, and they will run over one another in their scramble for them. But offer them the highest, and they will scarcely hold out a languid hand to take them. Now, we can turn this into self-pity, which we will not do. And I have no 
element of it in my heart. But we do need to understand that as we uphold the authoritative word of God, can I understate this? There's things in this book that offend people. There's things in this book they don't want to hear. And I've heard from a member in that church her frustration expressed directly to my wife that the gospel is never put pointedly in this church, ever. We'll get up to the edge of it, but we'll never call somebody to this truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if that is a truth that our culture does not want to hear, then that is a decision they are going to need to make. But may that never be a decision that we make as a church. To set the word and the authoritative truth of God aside so that we can appeal to a larger audience. I take heart when I see Jesus teaching and people responding. What a gracious speaker. And then hauling him out by the back of the neck to the brow of a hill to throw him off because they hate what he's saying. God's word is intended to convict. It is intended to challenge. It is intended to change us because he loves us. But like our culture, as it is treating, dealing with children these days, there's to be no rebuke, there's to be no correction, there's to be no hard word. And so it is going in the pulpits of our land. To say as little as we can, to just retain a little bit of Christianity. Downplaying God's truth, we can't do it. We can't do it, and by God's grace and your prayers, we won't. Gracious words, but truth. That's what we must hold to. That was Jesus' way. And let's think for a moment on healing, if I could even bring that just together with exorcism. Wouldn't we love to see such power in our day? To be able to clean out every sickness in this church and take people to Jesus and just with a touch of his hand to be delivered. Well, we would love it. And I believe there are many in our day who love it so much they've fallen in love with it. And they are seeking to manufacture miracles where there are none. Now, we are not saying that God does not perform miracles. God does perform miracles. He did and He does. His influence in this world is real. And there are times when he breaks into the time-space-mass continuum. He violates his natural laws in order to heal someone. God does that. We have no doubt in our mind. But the issue is not, does God perform miracles? The issue is this, does God invest particular individuals with the divine gift of healing today? Does he choose out individual people and say, you, I give the gift of healing? 
and you can take this power from my throne and you can minister to people and raise them up from their illness. I use as illustration Jack Deere, surprised by the power of the Spirit, who would evidence that type of thinking from a conservative perspective. I'm writing a paper for a man that I respect who thinks the same thing. There's many who are saying this. These advocates, however, it's interesting to me, all spill a considerable amount of ink to explain why we should not expect the same frequency of miracles, why we should not expect the same rate of success that Jesus enjoyed and the apostles displayed. Well, that's, and that's fair enough. Perhaps that would be the case, that we might not expect that. But is the healing that we see today of the same nature, to say nothing of the same rate of frequency and success as what was taking place in the New Testament? What we find in this text of Scripture is that Jesus cleaned out the hospital. The hospital of that day was your home. He cleaned out the hospital. They all came and everyone that he touched was healed. When Jesus limited his healing powers, and he did that. Remember in Nazareth it said in another gospel, he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. It is an immature reading of the text to take that and to say then, Jesus healed anyone who had faith. That is just a, an immature way of reading the text of Scripture. Jesus clearly turned away from many people that he could have healed where it, faith was not the issue. At other times, faith was the issue. But the issue was not, this person comes up to Jesus and says, will you please heal me? And he says, you don't have the faith, get out of here. That is not the picture that emerges from the New Testament. I think it has more to do with the fact that Jesus said there are certain people, if I will heal them, I will confirm them in their depravity and their lack of faith. They will be so excited about their newfound health, they will turn to that as their attention. They will not embrace me because they're not coming to me in faith anyway. He wouldn't heal those kinds of people. It's not because simply they didn't have faith. It was because of the mercy of God that he didn't heal them. The other thing that we see in the healings of Jesus and the apostles is that their enemies couldn't argue against them. What we see in our day, again, please understand, we know that God can heal. We know that he can heal miraculously. But does he invest individuals with this power? That's the issue. And there are people lined up who are enemies of such faith healers. And there are people who are fellow believers of such faith healers who stand up in mass and say, I'm not sure this is happening. That's not the miracles that we find in Jesus and the apostles. Nobody argued. The demons knew a healing had taken place. The Pharisees and the Sadducees knew that healings had taken place. The enemies of the cross of Christ knew that the apostles were healing people. They could not argue. Now, is this simply an evidence of the massive display of lack of faith in our day? Or is it the fact that there's something different going on? 
We pray for healing in our church. I've prayed with all of my heart, as hard as I know how to pray. I've anointed and I've placed hands on people and I've prayed in the privacy of my own home and office for the healing of people. I'm no healer. And I don't know any healers who can just come along and do what we want to do. But I believe that in this unique time, Jesus did display that power for one reason in particular, and that was to say, I have authority and power over the realm of darkness. Make no mistake. I want to imitate Jesus Christ. But I want to imitate Jesus and the apostles in the way he wants me to imitate them. I want my children to imitate the way that I live. I do not want them to drive our car home this afternoon. There are certain things we can do and should do and focus on, and there are other things we need to leave to Jesus and the apostles. And if you can place your hands on someone and pray for them, and they are healed, praise God. But don't spend your life focused on that. Or is it not ironic that we begin to come right back down to the same response of the people that rejected Jesus? All interested in the miracle very little attention to the teaching. We must not jump the gun, and we must not create what isn't. But we do struggle with sickness and with sin. And there is hope. Those of you who are dealing with disease suffering, and all of us will, some respect or with tragedy, leave this life if Jesus doesn't come back before we have this hope. Jesus will come again. Jesus will rule the universe. He holds authority and power over Satan and his realm of death. Our confidence is this, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. I have no fear of Satan's power, for his kingdom has been dealt a death blow. In word and deed, Jesus is the Savior of the world. What we must do is to press on, to hold to that truth, and to seek that coming kingdom as its dawn already is shining upon us. He will come and this world will be set right. Press on in his name and to his glory, for he is Messiah in word and deed. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we believe this with all of our heart. You performed these miracles through Jesus. His hand healed. He has absolute authority over heaven and earth. But God, we do struggle in this environment of sin. Sin beats us up. Sickness and disease are everywhere present. It's a world at war and a world in turmoil. This is our environment, and we ask you, God, for help to deal with it and live through it. But Lord... It is what Jesus did that gives us that hope, and so I pray that that hope would take 
deep root in the hearts of your people. May we be sanctified and changed as we have invested this hour thinking about the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. May we be faithful. Lord, never throwing rocks at other churches or ever wanting to destroy other Christians for what they think is true. But I pray that our church would be marked by holding firmly to the authoritative Word of God and following obediently what you want us to do in this world. May we not go chasing off after miracles in, while failing to honor your truth. I pray, God, that we would hold rather in faith and in confidence to the fact that you have defeated this realm of darkness. You have made a public display of the powers over which you have triumphed, as Colossians 1 says. And God, we rejoice in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us joy in our heart as we leave this place, remembering that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Teach us this. Confirm it in our hearts. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Let's stand.